Welcome to World of Soundtracks, a monthly podcast where we explore storytelling aspects in films and TV through music. Whether it is comparing book adaptations, observing themes over a series, or microanalyzing the choice of instruments, we look at how the story is told and moves us. I am your host, Ruth Mudge, and today we'll be looking at the 2020 movie of Emma. First of all, I would like to welcome any new listeners. It's been fun to see this slowly grow over the past few months, especially internationally. I'm very excited to talk about this film version of Emma. Like many in the Jane Austen community, this was the last film that I saw before lockdown, so quite a few things stayed with me. This film is a bit of a controversial one as far as style is concerned, especially regarding musical preferences, but to me, the music is one of the best parts of the film. It has almost everything one would want in a Jane Austen film. Classical music, folk music, comedy, themes and instruments for individual characters. The only thing it doesn't have is diegetic music, which is music used in the film world that is also part of the soundtrack by the composer. There's a lot of music to cover, so this will probably be the longest podcast to date. Thankfully, almost everything is on the soundtrack or titled in the credits at the end of the film, so you can find it later if you wish. One of the great things about this being a recent film is that there are a lot of interviews with one of the composers, Isabel Waller-Bridge, and a blog post by her co-composer, David Schweitzer, describing their process and decision-making. It doesn't require a lot of guesswork for me to understand what the composers intended, since much of it is already laid out. Both Isabel and David worked together previously on the 2018 miniseries of Vanity Fair, so they knew that they worked well together and that their styles paired well together. Interestingly, Johnny Flynn, who is Mr. Knightley in this Emma, was also in that miniseries. Isabel Waller-Bridge is a British composer that has been emerging over the past decade, writing for film, TV, classical music, theater, and even being asked to put together the playlist for Alexander McQueen's collection at the Paris Fashion Week last year. She co-wrote on the miniseries War and Peace with Martin Phipps, who is known in the Jane Austen circles for his scores of the 2007 Persuasion and Sense and Sensibility. Other scores by Waller-Bridge include Vita and Victoria, as well as her sister's show, Fleabag. David Schweitzer has written and co-written for quite a few documentaries, TV animations, and period dramas for the past 15 years, including Victoria, The Crown, and the newest season of Sanditon. His music for the documentary 9-11, One Day in America, was nominated for an Emmy this year, in 2022, and he also wrote the music for Netflix, Our Great National Parks, narrated by Barack Obama. Having written over 100 episodes for animation, he has found that very helpful for matching the timing in this Emma's specific choreography between movement and music. The director, Autumn DeWilde, made it very clear that she wanted the music to tell the story in a similar way to Peter and the Wolf. If you aren't familiar with this delightful children's story with narrator and orchestra, I highly recommend listening to the whole thing. It was written in 1936 by Russian composer Sergei Prokofiev, where each animal or character has a specific instrument and theme. Here's a small sample where you can hear the character the duck in the oboe, 
and the little bird in the flute. Autumn wanted the music to be front and center, telling the story with each character having their own instrument and theme that matched their specific character traits. You can hear these characters interact with overlapping themes, particularly with Emma and Mr. Knightley, in a similar way to the 2009 miniseries. Everything, of course, begins and ends with Emma. She's the main protagonist as well as the title of the book and film. Her music includes several parts and combination of instruments, for you cannot limit Emma to just one. The film opens and ends with the sound of the clock. Not only is timing important to this film, but so is the seasons changing and the idea of characters working like clockwork in a society with specific rules and order. Emma has the harp as her main instrument, an instrument of elegance and wealth, also featured in the other Emma adaptations. But the instrument that really stands out is the voice, particularly in the style of Italian opera sung by a soprano and tenor. The idea was inspired by the movie Room with a View, which opened with Puccini's O Mio Babino Caro. While Puccini would have been too modern for an Austin adaptation, instead the opera style is in the style of Mozart and Rossini, such as when characters come together at the end of an act, like this aria of Mozart's 1790 opera, Cosi van Tutte. gives a sense of status and entitlement as we see the opening first words from the book, Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich. And then we see Emma pointing out to the servants exactly which flowers should be cut from Miss Taylor's bouquet. The other things to pay attention to are the addition of bells, clarinet, and strings, with little trills and their quick alternations of notes. The bells are both a nod to wedding bells, but also a light magical sound. Clarinet and strings are used a lot in Austin adaptations, hearkening back to Mozart. In fact, clarinet was the main instrument for Emma in both of the other recent adaptations. The other more unusual color is the harpsichord, a slightly old-fashioned Baroque keyboard instrument that notes both status and comedy. It could be used for Mr. Woodhouse being slightly stuck in the past and his specific ways of doing things and how his life is intertwined with his daughter. The singers enter once more as she walks down the hallway with the flowers, as the title Emma overlays the image, being almost bridal and giving a sense of the entire movie. Finally, the piano is added at the end, a softer version of what the harpsichord can offer, being more romantic in nature as it gives a slightly softer feel even in the midst of a jaunty, upbeat piece.
Now, if you've been with me for a little while, you may know that I love my bookends. And this Emma is very similar to the 1996 movie in that the bookends revolve around Emma beginning with Miss Taylor's wedding and then ending with her own. At Emma and Mr. Knightley's wedding at the end, the violins play her operatic theme, which gives it a slightly more romantic sound as she walks down the aisle. The female voices enter as the men start crying. It grows with the tenor joining in as they hold hands. And then the bells play the theme as she closes her eyes, content, fading to black. We next look at Mr. Knightley's instrument and motif, as it is the one that interacts with Emma the most. Mr. Knightley gets the French horn, which is often used for heroes, and it occurs in two different tempos in his introduction. The slower for the more romantic, noble-sensitive hero as he gets dressed, and then the faster tempo as he walks around the house, heading towards Hartfield, containing more energy reflecting this hero that likes to walk everywhere, giving it a vitality. The motif goes up almost like a hunting call, something that a horn was used for, and fitting for an independent gentleman of that era. I will admit I was delighted when I first heard and saw it, as the movie was not subtle about the French horn being Mr. Knightley's instrument. The other thing to take note of is the flute that flits around during the second part. The flute is used to represent excitement throughout the film, and it also lends an energy as he is eager to visit the woodhouses. The music, of course, switches to Emma's theme as Emma sees him approaching and runs to start playing the pianoforte.
One fun thing to note is that the top notes that the French horn plays are also the first notes in Emma's themes played in the bells. Their themes are literally intertwined and connected, like the characters and the families from the beginning. I'm going to play both of these briefly again so you can pay attention to it. Since the main romance is between these two characters, it would make sense that their themes would overlap in more places than just the beginning or the wedding. The first of these examples is after the ball. The horn plays as Mr. Knightley sees Emma leave in the carriage, and he begins to run after her. It is the slow and romantic version, reflecting all of his emotions, while a female opera singer enters with a harp as Emma sits in the window. Then her harp theme begins as she runs down to meet him while the bells enter with their theme. voice is used also to express emotions when the characters can't say anything yet. We heard that both in the past example, as well as when Mr. Knightley arrives home in despair after believing Emma chose Frank Churchill, tearing off his coat and lying down on the floor accompanied by his French horn and the female opera singer, in the fantastically titled Mr. Knightley is Destroyed. Piano is an instrument often used for quiet, intimate moments in film, and in this movie, it is used sparingly so that it has more impact in its solo moments. One of these moments is when Mr. Knightley's theme plays slowly, as everyone leaves Emma and Frank alone at Box Hill after she insults Miss Bates, with a horn entering as Mr. Knightley walks up to her while she waits in the carriage right before he scolds her leaving things unresolved as it moves into silence during their dialogue. Mm -hmm. 
the sound is reminiscent of a Beethoven piano piece, such as the Beethoven Piano Concerto, which was played at the beginning of the Box Hill Excursion. This is the fourth Beethoven Piano Concerto, a piece that was significant to the director, performed by Glenn Gould at the beginning of Box Hill. Now as a cellist, I'm very biased and thrilled to say that it has been the instrument used for the hero in crucial moments for Jane Austen films, from the 1995 Pride and Prejudice as Elizabeth sees his portrait, to several key moments including the proposal in the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, to being the main instrument for Mr. Knightley in the 2009 miniseries. Here it is used for Mr. Knightley as he proposes playing his theme over the chords of the main theme, Rolled in the Harp, as he says how he envies Frank Churchill. It is a quiet, intimate moment, a duet between the violin and cello, as Emma tells him that she will listen to him as a friend, then moving into their joint theme as he pours out his feelings with beautiful words and the cello. Mixing comedy with the romantic is heard as they sit around the fire, later with Mr. Woodhouse. The same music of the proposal is heard, but in pizzicato, plucked strings often used for comedy, being short and providing a lot of space, to match the movements combined with a few short notes in the clarinet. The harpsichord reemerges playing the melody as Mr. Woodhouse talks about a draft around the knees, providing a screen for privacy for Emma and Mr. Knightley. The solo piano returns, playing a little bit of Emma's theme as she kisses Mr. Knightley, and then moves straight into playing Mr. Knightley's theme in a lower register, with the added romantic violin as he kisses her back. (laughs) ¶¶ 
other musical theme that interplays with Emma's the most is Harriet Smith's. Harriet Smith's violin theme is a simple, almost folk-like melody. This will tie into the folk music we will talk about later. While Frank Churchill's theme also uses violin, the style is so different that there is no problem in getting them confused. We first hear Harriet's theme as she comes to visit Emma for tea. You can also hear the flute fill in the space as she is excited to visit the great house. There is a bit of nervous excitement reflected in the winds. This is also a good example of how music is used for transitions, especially as characters are walking, as is in the case for many other Austin adaptations. In a similar fashion to other adaptations, there is also a lot of silence for the dialogue in intimate moments. Sometimes the accompaniment of someone's theme or use of instrument is used for more subtle or short moments. We've already heard that a little bit with Emma's theme. But that is also used in the harp to represent Emma when she introduces Harriet to Mr. Elton. Robert Martin has his own instrument in the English horn, which is a larger and lower oboe. This instrument is used in orchestral settings for more countryside or bucolic settings so it seems appropriate to use for the romantic farmer. When Harriet sees Mr. Martin, her theme plays twice as fast, with a fluttering flute representing her excitement and nerves, followed by her theme in the English horn as they interact. It is both sweet and a little comical. There is also a background with harp and bells as Emma looks on. It then switches to Emma's harp motif as Emma gives her opinions about Mr. Martin. When Harriet receives Mr. Martin's proposal and chooses to refuse it with Emma's guidance, the piano plays minor chords with the violin echoing a note with a harp, musically showing that Emma is leading Harriet down this path. Later on, we can hear the voice of the opera singers again as Emma walks to visit Harriet at Mrs. Goddard's school before she discovers Harriet is sick, portraying her level of superiority and the little smirk she has while the girls running by to greet her in the foyer are reflected in the winds. Mm -hmm. 
Robert's instruments and themes return again as they run into each other in the shop. The violin is playing with the piano in unison, but lower, the style resembling more classical music, such as Beethoven or this piano trio in B-flat by Franz Schubert, written in 1827. Harriet's theme is turned into a waltz in three, especially heard in the pizzicato accompaniment. Her folk theme becomes more classical in nature throughout the film as she spends more time with Emma. English horn returns as they talk in the rain, both a little sad and depressed. A great example of instruments sharing themes is when Harriet tells Emma that she has fallen in love again. The violin plays a melody while piano and bells are added to the mixture, but it is Mr. Knightley's theme that we hear. Even though Emma believes Harriet is talking about Frank Churchill, the melody tells us that it is Mr. Knightley that Harriet has fallen for. Now the violin so far has been used for romantic moments for the main couple, for a folk melody for Harriet, but it is also used in a more seductive tango-like melody for Frank Churchill. We first hear it when he arrives, asking for directions, while Emma is waiting for Harriet in an open carriage. The melody is then played in the flute over pizzicato, reflecting her excitement to meet him as they are introduced in the greenhouse by the Westons. This theme is a bit lower in the violin, for that seductive and more sophisticated feel.
This theme reminds me of the violin solo in Camille Sasson's Dance Macabre. The violin section plays Frank's theme as winds join them while Frank and Emma walk to Highbury towards the store. The feeling of a waltz gives it a slightly more romantic vibe and the idea of dancing around each other. play trills as the women gossip over Jane Fairfax's new piano at the Coles's party, but over the accompanimental chords of Frank Churchill's theme, giving a little musical hint to the audience. His theme first plays in the oboe and the violin as he suggests to Emma that Mr. Dixon was a gifter of the piano. Frank Churchill's theme returns one last time in the film in the violins and cellos when he arrives at Donwell Abbey after Jane left and he stays to talk to Emma about his discontent. A slightly seductive waltz leads us to a tango, which is present at two meals featuring the Westons. The first time is the celebration dinner after the wedding, as the camera pans down the table, showing everyone eating and giving a glimpse to the audience of what these characters are like as they interact. This theme then returns for the Christmas dinner at the Westons. The theme does seem to be similar or foreshadowing Frank Churchill's theme, but the accompaniment is more of a tango feel as Emma tries to get more information about Frank Churchill while Mr. Elton is showing more attentions to her than she appreciates. It is a bit of a dance as these families interact and as Emma shows interest in Frank before he arrives. leads us into the over-dramatizing or exaggerating that occurs for comedic purposes in this film. The music is intentionally over the top, at the desire of the director. Not only that, but a lot of the comedy in music is a choreography with a note specifically placed to match a head turn or a cloth thrown. One of the examples of this is near the beginning, as Mr. Woodhouse jumps down the stairs declaring, Poor Miss Taylor! This Mr. Woodhouse has energy, and yet frenetic about any possible draft that may appear. We hear a big swell in timpani hits as he jumps down. The bassoon and clarinet have a dialogue similar to the operatic voices as he and Emma talk about the upcoming wedding for Miss Taylor as they get ready to leave to attend it. Then the orchestra takes this comedic theme as they continue in the carriage with the harpsichord present. Thank you. 
This fun theme returns as everyone arrives at the ball. Miss Bates admiring everything, Mrs. Elton talking to Jane about her dress, and a little pizzicato as Frank and Mr. Knightley look at each other, followed by the timpani rolling as they look away. next comedic melody occurs as Emma is bored at the beginning, after the wedding. She is yet to meet Harriet and is getting dressed before having breakfast with her father. It also sets the transition to autumn. The accompaniment begins first, a repeating pattern heard in both pizzicato, clarinet, and bassoon, which provides a unique color. This baseline pattern also leads to the sense of repetition and boredom felt by Emma. One of the best overdramatic pieces is used in two different spots. The first is when Emma sees Miss Bates through the window at the store and tries to avoid her while Miss Bates tells her about Jane's letter. It opens with almost a low growl in the bassoon and bass clarinet. This music is used again when everyone sees Mrs. Elton for the first time, sitting in the Woodhouse pew at church. It matches their head swivels, with every head nod and look matched with a note from bells or other instruments. The bassoon plays as Mr. Elton walks down. While he doesn't have a specific theme in this version, the bassoon is heard frequently in his scenes, matching the need for comic bassoon to be used for clergymen in Jane Austen adaptations. I highly recommend paying attention to the music in that scene, and the following to notice how everything lines up. The other perfectly timed scene is when Mr. Elton presents the portrait framed in a music box. The operatic voices are used again, both for Emma and for the sheer extravagance of the frame. The violin present for Harriet, 
the bassoon for Mr. Elton, and you can hear the timing part way through with two discordant chords as he throws off the cloth into one of the servant's faces to reveal the frame. There is a growing crescendo leading to the opening of the doors, and then it is revealed to be a music box. It's a fantastically ridiculous scene, and it knows it. Last but not least in this style of comedic music is during the proposal. After all the beautiful music with the heartfelt words, Emma has a nosebleed heard with pizzicato and trolls, and then the music becomes overdramatic as she originally refuses the proposal because of Harriet, with the flute going up and down as their emotions are going up and down. They do get it all straightened out as she determines to explain everything to Robert Martin with the violin soaring up. A section of horns returns with a few chords as Mr. Knightley walks away thrilled once they get everything resolved. There is one moment that is both a little comical, but also serious when used the second time, and that is the use of the solo soprano voice to represent the unveiling of the soul and emotions of our female heroines. There is always a choice in an Austin adaptation to have what is considered special music for the dance of the main couple, or in the case of Emma, the choice whether to have the special music either for Mr. Knightley's dance with Emma, or when he comes to Harriet's rescue after being snubbed by Mr. Elton. In this case, the dance music remains with the traditional tunes used for all the dances, but a single soprano voice sings as Mr. Knightley walks to Harriet, 
being snubbed between dances, with almost angelic light behind him. It perfectly captures her feelings at the moment, as the voice quality is not operatic like the rest of the movie, but instead with minimal vibrato to help it soar and reflect the vulnerability. This voice is used again as Emma becomes aware of her feelings, right after Harriet leaves, having told Emma about her feelings for Mr. Knightley and that she had refused Mr. Barton because of her. It is an unveiling of Emma's feelings, and while it was a moment of being found for Harriet in the ball, here it is almost the sense of loss. The voice sings over high strings, slowly moving with Emma's heart motif, while Mr. Knightley and Emma walk towards each other on the grounds, leading up to the proposal. Speaking of the ball, we now turn to the dance and folk music. The only music written by the composer that resembles folk tunes for dancing is as Emma and Frank Churchill begin planning to have a ball, dancing around chairs in the street. The violin and harp play, but it is not the slinky Frank sound, but instead the sound of a folk violin that you would hear at one of these dances, staying in three, which is a common minuet or waltz time signature. All the music played at the ball are traditional folk tunes, as is the custom with many adaptations, in keeping with a very similar group of instrumentalists that you find in other Austin dances, a small group of strings and flute. The players are credited at the end of the movie, which is a newer thing in the past few years. As a musician, I think this is great to give credit where credit is due. They play several folk tunes, such as the Weymouth Dance, Nova Scotia, and finish with Mr. Turner's Waltz for Emma and Mr. Knightley's dance. This waltz was adapted by Michael Turner and published between 1842 and 52, but is based on a theme by Mozart from his German Dances, number two.
Now, before you get upset about stealing and copyright issues, you do have to realize that many famous pieces were reduced to a smaller group for regular use. This still happens today with your favorite music, especially for those who play piano. While Turner probably shouldn't have named it after himself, the idea of adapting it from an orchestral version to the melody for a single player or a small group makes sense from a practical side of things and was very common. This theme is in minor with a little bit of a pedal tone or single note in the bass at the beginning, which is heard a little more clearly in this Turner version. The slower tempo gives the main couple time to stare at each other and become aware of each other as they dance, especially as they aren't dancing with gloves. What makes this adaptation unique is using sung folk music as part of the storytelling throughout the film, past the dances or songs performed in the drawing room. This is an aspect that is probably the most controversial for viewers as they either loved it or were really taken aback. While the folk style of singing can sound guttural and harsh to some, it is a great way of doing two things. Folk music is used for the town of Highbury, as you can see Mrs. Goddard's girls walking by in their red cloaks, and especially for Harriet and Robert Martin. It provides an earthiness in the kind of music they would be hearing and singing themselves. It also works in the same way that you hear songs in current romantic comedies, providing words to fit the scene and set the mood. It has the same function that the pop songs of the 90s work in Clueless, another adaptation of Emma. It tells you about the characters while setting the environment. The first folk song featured is Country Life, sung by the English folk group The Watersons, originally from the album For Pence and Spicy Ale, released in 1975. They were known for lots of a cappella singing of folk and traditional songs. This is sung as Harriet leaves visiting Emma for the first time, one of the many transition songs. Mrs. Goddard's girls walk by, and then it transitions to Harriet and Emma at the shop in Highbury. The opening verse goes as follows. I like to rise when the sun she rises, early in the morning. And I like to hear them small birds singing, merrily upon their lelums. And hurrah for the life of a country boy, and to ramble in the new mowed hay. I like to rise when the sun she rises, early in the morning. I like to hear them small birds singing merrily upon their lalum, and hurrah for the life of a country boy, and to ramble in the new morning. The next song is the first of several performed by Maddie Pryor and the Carnival Band. Maddie Pryor is another English folk singer singing and touring for decades both as a soloist and with different bands. 
I have heard several of her songs and hymn arrangements over the years, so for me, it was a delight to hear a few of these in Emma. The hymn How Firm a Foundation is on her 1990 album Sing Lustily and with Good Courage. The hymn itself was first published in 1787 by John Rippon. The hymn is heard twice in regards to Robert Martin and visiting his farm. First, when Mr. Knightley rides over to visit him, inviting him to check out something regarding farming. The second is when Emma visits him at the end, as he opens up the picture of Harriet that Emma had painted. While neither of these scenes are particularly religious, it does give the setting of someone who is stalwart and faithful, firmly in the ground for what he does for a living, but steadfast in his love for Harriet as well. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, you who unto Jesus Hark, Hark, What News is the next song from Maddie Pryor as the movie transitions to winter and the nightly show up to Hartfield in the carriage from London. This was first heard on Maddie Pryor and the Carnival Band's 2001 album, Gold, Frankincense, and Myrrh. The words of this lesser-known Christmas carol were written in the 1700s, while the tune was written by William Sandy in 1833. This carol is a tradition for rural Cornwall and South Yorkshire villages. Hark, hark, what news the angels bring. Glad tidings of a newborn king. Born of a maid, a virgin pure. Born without sin, from guilt secure. It's a fun idea to use a Christmas carol not really known by the audience, and the contrast of a happy song singing of the baby without sin while you hear lots of strife in the carriage arriving for Christmas. Hark, hark, what news the angels bring. Glad tidings of, glad tidings of a newborn king. Born of a maid, a virgin pure. Without sin, born without sin, born without sin, from guilt secure. The last Maddie Pryor song is The Game of Cards, performed with June Tabor when they were known as the group Silly Sisters, which was also the title of their first album that they released, featuring this song in 1976. This is a folk song originating before 1830, but it has mostly been passed down orally instead of written down, so the exact origins are unclear. The song is featuring a young man meeting a girl on the highway, and she offers to teach him the card game, The Game of All Fours, which was a card game, but the song is also considered a bit on the body side, reading into the words. Like all the songs, only the first verse or two is played, as that fits the time and often mood for the movie. The song is played as Harriet and Mr. Martin kiss near the end, and then run off into the fields together. As I was a-walking one midsummer's morning, I heard the birds whistle and the nightingales play. And there did I spy a beautiful maiden, as I was a-walking all on the highway. Oh, where are you going, my fair pretty lady? 
Oh, where are you going so early this morn? She said, I'm going down to visit my neighbors. I'm going down to Warwick, the place I was born. It's may I come with you, my sweet pretty darling. May I go long in your sweet company. Then she turned her head and smiling all at me, saying, You may come with me, kind sir, if you please. Walking one midsummer's morning, I heard the birds whistle and the nightingales play. And there did I spy a beautiful maiden as I was walking along the highway. Oh, where are you going, my fair pretty lady? Oh, where are you going so early this morning? She said, I'm going down to visit my neighbor. She turned her head and smiling all at me, saying, You may come with me, kind sir, if you please. The final folk song used as an accompaniment to the story is Oh Wally Wally, a Scottish folk song that Jane Austen had in her own collection. It was adapted to modern English under the title The Water is Wide and published in 1906 by Cecil Sharp. The version heard on the soundtrack includes the English lyrics and a classical choir arrangement by the famous British conductor and composer John Rutter. Rutter arranged this choir version featured on his 1993 album, The Lark in the Clear Air, with the Cambridge Singers. This was an album that I grew up with thanks to my grandparents, so it was nice to hear a recording I was familiar with. In the film, this is sung after Mr. Elton's proposal to Emma as he is left angry in the snow. Emma is disappointed in the carriage, and then Harriet is playing the flower marriage game with the girls at school before hearing the news. It is a song about a false love, but presented in a quieter way than the previous folk songs, as Emma is hurting for her friend, and we know Harriet is about to be bitterly disappointed, but first winning the game that means she will get married first. The water is wide, I cannot get over and neither have I wings to fly. Give me a boat that will carry two, and both shall row, my love and I. Oh, down in the meadows the other day, a gathering flowers both fine and gay, a gathering flowers both red and blue, I little thought what love can do.
The other use for folk songs is more common for Emma and other Austin adaptations, and that is the songs being performed by the characters themselves. There are two different private concerts in this version. In the first one, Emma begins the music with the traditional song, Last Rose of Summer, a lovely sweet song while adding a bit of affectation and drama into how she ended the song, really enjoying her fermata, which is a dramatic pause. This song was a poem by Irish Thomas More, written in 1805 and set to a traditional tune, The Young Man's Dream, published together in 1813 of Thomas More's A Selection of Irish Melodies. Emma sings the first verse and then adds the last two lines of the last stanza for the extra dramatic sigh. "'Tis the last rose of summer left blooming alone. All her lovely companions are faded and gone." No flower of her kindred, no rosebud is nigh to reflect back her blushes or give sigh for sigh. Oh, who would inhabit this bleak world alone? This recording is performed by the Celtic woman. Tis the last We will get to the contrast of Jane Fairfax's music in that concert in a moment. Later on, while at the Coles' party, both Jane and Mr. Knightley perform a song together. This is a bit of a deviation, as it is Frank Churchill in the books who is the performer. Yet they make it work so that it feeds off the idea Mrs. Weston tells Emma that Mr. Knightley is the giver of the pianoforte, and seeing them perform together makes her a little uncomfortable and a little jealous. It is a role reversal of what usually occurs with Mr. Knightley becoming a little jealous, seeing Emma and Mr. Churchill sing together. One of the reasons this occurs is because Johnny Flynn has a career as a musician alongside being an actor, being the lead singer and songwriter of the band Johnny Flynn and the Sussex Wit. He also had to learn two instruments for a music scholarship he won for school, which included the violin, which is why he is seen playing violin in that scene. The duet sung in this scene is the traditional song, Drink to Me Only with Thine Eyes. The lyrics are from the poem, To Celia, by English playwright Ben Johnson, published in 1616. For those of you who may remember from the episode on Sense and Sensibility, Ben Johnson is the author of the lyrics, The Dream, which was the second song Mary Ann sang. Drink to Me also became a famous Johnny Cash song. Only the first stanza is sung in the movie. Drink to me only with thine eyes, and I will pledge with mine. Or leave a kiss within the cup, and I'll not ask for wine. The thirst that from the soul doth rise, 
doth ask a drink divine. But might I of Jove's nectar sup, I would not change for thine. Pretty romantic words, and combined with a look that Jane gives Mr. Knightley, can definitely lend itself to why Emma is looking a bit put out throughout the song. Due to Johnny Flynn not only being a singer, but also a songwriter, he was asked to write and perform the last song for the credits, Queen Bee. This is in the style of the folk songs already heard, but also a song from Mr. Knightley's perspective. Since the rest of the movie is really from Emma's perspective, it's an unusual choice to end from Mr. Knightley's view, but it still is regarding his view on Emma herself. Emma has been described by Jane Austen as a character who no one much likes except myself, and even at the beginning of this film, she shows many of those arrogant and self-focused tendencies. This song helps to see how Mr. Knightley views her as the film ends with their wedding. By Queen Bee describes how Emma is the center of Highbury, a powerful woman who will stay that way even in their marriage, but also very romantic throughout the years and seasons in his devotion to her. The song covers all the seasons in the way that the film has a title sequence for each changing season. Connected to that, the director Autumn was asked to sing as a backup singer on the song, and he put in a line for both her and Bill Nighy, who played Mr. Woodhouse. Autumn's flourish, summer's turn is nigh. All is for my mistress, all is for my maid. Sweetness that I took for, sweetness that she gave to me. My queen bee. Though my heart has long been given to you, summer's turn is nigh. Swifts and swallows swoop and yearn for you with all that's in the sky. But blow the wind and come the rain and come my love again. Autumn's flourish fruit that falls for you, apples sweet as death. All that falls has lived and died for you, gently come to rest. Winter's kiss has some enthralled, so they keep their fires bright. But my breast is lit with flames to shun the dying of the light. I'll speak love's truth with oak and ash for you, sing through April's tears. I will weave the bonny flowers of spring for you. I will walk for years. All is for my mistress, all is for my maid. Sweetness that I took for, sweetness that she gave to me. My queen bee, 
Though my heart has long been given to you, summer's turn is nigh. Swifts and swallows swoop and yearn for you with all that's in the sky. But blow the wind and come the rain and come my love again. All is for my mistress, all is for my maid. Sweetness that I took for sweetness that she gave to me. My queen bee. Returning to the drawing room performances leads us to the classical music portion. One of the most important parts of these home concerts is to show the contrast of Emma and Jane in their ability levels, as well as their personalities and interactions. Emma felt superior with her song until Jane begins to play. This version heightens it in a very funny moment as Harriet tells Emma that no one can play as well as she does after Emma sings The Last Rose of Summer only for Jane to begin playing the third movement of Mozart's piano sonata in F major quite skillfully and fast. Their look of surprise is fantastic when they hear the sonata. Actress Amber Anderson, who plays Jane Fairfax, is herself an accomplished pianist and is the one heard on the recordings, and not just seen playing as is often the case with movie performances. This is also one of the few Austin adaptations that actually recorded a pianoforte, including an 1808 Broadwood, one of the three that were loaned for this production. Most Austin adaptations show a pianoforte, but the audience hears a modern piano. While the composers considered using it throughout the score for this film, they ultimately decided to use the specific tone just for the performances by the characters. Part of that is due to the slight difference of tuning that makes it harder to match with a full orchestra. It does not have the full octave range that a modern piano does and can sound a little brighter and almost tinnier. The pianoforte was the bridge between the harpsichord of the 1700s and the evolution of the current piano in the mid-1800s. It is also known as the forte piano, but Jane Austen uses the term pianoforte in her books which is why there is some confusion as to which is the correct title. The pianoforte could produce dynamics, which the harpsichord could not, hence the name meaning soft, loud, and began to expand how many notes it could play. The pedal was also being experimented with in how to use it and how many to have. It was the main instrument for composers such as Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, the three big classical composers from the late 1700s heard in this film. The pianoforte is heard several times throughout the film. The first time is Emma sits down near the beginning to play Minuet and Trio in G Major by Mozart. She runs and starts playing as she sees Mr. Knightley approach the house. 
most likely to show that she's industrious and not just lounging around like she had been a minute ago. I will say that Emma plays at about half the speed as this recording, which also tells you about her level of ability and her willingness to practice. In contrast, Jane Fairfax played stormy, romantic Beethoven at home after the debacle of Fox Hill to relieve her feelings and also accompanying Emma's feelings after being scolded by Mr. Knightley and coming to the Bates' home to apologize. This piano sonata, number 23, is known as the Appassionata Sonata, and it can be reflected even in this slower second movement. It is used both in seeing the character who has been shown as icy to have great passion and feelings underneath, but also reflects the turmoil of Emma's emotions. This Beethoven Sonata and the Beethoven Piano Concerto at Box Hill are not the only classical music pieces used as an accompanying score. That in itself places this adaptation with only a few others in the Austin adaptations that use classical music, outside of performances and ballrooms, namely the 1995 Persuasion movie and Love and Friendship. All of the classical music is used both for dramatic purposes but also shows a level of class in the way that the folk music did, primarily for Mr. Knightley and Emma and their respective homes. Haydn's Symphony No. 45, also known as the Farewell Symphony, is played as the film transitions to summer and the characters visit Donwell Abbey. This piece was written in 1772 and includes a French horn solo, which feels appropriate as they are visiting Mr. Knightley's home and admiring the beautiful paintings. The music provides a level of stateliness and grandeur to match the mood and setting.
The other piece featured by Haydn is one of his many string quartets, Quartet No. 20, Opus 17, The Third Movement. This quartet plays as Emma returns home after visiting Miss Bates following the Box Hill disaster, only to discover Mr. Knightley leaving and saying goodbye. It also follows Emma getting undressed and covering her hands over her face over the whole situation, and finally transitioning to the picture of Frank Churchill's estate at the Westons as Emma asks what has happened. This music is a little more subdued, and while still keeping a certain level of order and class, it is also a little intimate due to size. In general, Emma's music is light, fun, and a bit over the top, while Mr. Knightley's is grand and romantic. Neither of these themes would match their subdued emotions at this point, while still presenting on the surface that everything is all right, which is why classical music fits this place very nicely. As I mentioned near the beginning, this film has a rare combination of original music tailored for each character, especially in regards to humor, but also using classical and folk music to aid in telling the story when necessary. These are techniques frequently used in other types of movies, but less familiar to the Austin adaptations in using all three to this extent. The music captures Emma's essence as handsome, clever, and rich but yet still growing as a person through her relationships with Mr. Knightley and Harriet Smith. The folk and classical music grounds the world in music from that time period, giving the setting of class, and letting the lyrics help tell the story in a different way. Whether this is your favorite version of an Emma adaptation or not, one cannot deny that the music is a crucial part of telling the story. This fall, I'm going to swerve and focus on a different set of book adaptations, namely the Harry Potter series. I do plan on returning to Mansfield Park in Persuasion in the winter for all of you Jane Austen fans. Thank you so much for all your support and listening. I do really appreciate your comments and feedback. You can join in on discussing all the musical moments regarding this Emma, or all of them, on the Facebook group, World of Soundtracks, or on Twitter and Instagram at WO Soundtracks. I would love to know your favorite musical moment or track from this movie. Please like and subscribe, share with friends, or even leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Amazon. I highly recommend subscribing so you don't miss when the next episode comes out at the end of each month. Until next time, happy listening! A special thanks to all those involved to make this podcast happen, especially Edith Mudge for the title music and Lindsay Bergsma for the graphics. This is World of Soundtracks. Thank you.